Okay, am I on? Okay, well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you very much indeed for coming along. I'm Harry Sherrod, and a very warm welcome to our latest at Brooklyn's Talk. Um, Fiona Easterby, her day job is as a camera operator. She's been telling me all sorts of interesting stories working for Sky News and uh, other similar organisations, but her main passion is driving inappropriate vehicles in inaccessible places. Ladies and gentlemen, big warm welcome, please, for Fiona Easterby. Um, thank you. Great turnout. And uh, I was here for Paddy Hopkirk last month, so uh, if I'm half as entertaining as he was, then I'll be happy. Um, so Harry's asked me to come along tonight and talk about all my travels around the world. I don't think he realised quite how many I'd been on because he said, how many slides have you got? So I am going to have to talk quite quickly, I think, to get through it all. So I thought I'd start with my first travels. Um, my, my first ever car was this 1965 Austin Healey Sprite. And it was when I was driving that that I got a job working on the Formula One. So you see my niece and nephew there in their Formula One overalls of Benetton and Jordan back in 98 there. So this, this was my first experience of travel with cars. Not driving myself, unfortunately. They wouldn't let me have a go at that. So we got Argentina in 98 here. This is, I, I tried to cycle around each of the tracks. So here we are in, in Imola and Catalonia. Monaco, I'm sure everybody recognises. I drove around that one. There's a, a Monaco paddock in the tunnel there. And that's, that's the plane that Bernie used to fly us around the world on when we, I was working for Bernie's uh, television company. Um, this was an ex-British Airways plane which had been belly-flopped in the Channel Islands, so he got it cheap. <laughs> and bits used to fall off it quite often, but we survived. We used to fly in and out of some of the shortest runways you've ever seen. Uh, there were some, some quite hairy landings at times. They slammed the anchors on before they hit the tree line at the end of the runway. So this, the, the, that sort of led me into my first rally. So when I was working on the Formula One, Bernie has quite a car collection, as I'm sure you can imagine. And I was lucky enough to see some of his collection that he keeps in this country, in one of the hangars at Biggin Hill. And I met his man who looks after his cars, who was taking one of Bernie's cars competing on the Peking Paris. I thought, wow, I'd love to do that. That looks amazing. But the entrance fee was a little bit beyond what Bernie was paying me. So I came across this event, the Plymouth Banjul Challenge, which is basically the budget version of the Paris-Dakar. So the idea is you buy a car for under £100, drive it down to Gambia, and then all the vehicles are auctioned off for charity when you get down there. So we got this car for £99, hadn't run for 15 years. It had been imported from Germany by a couple of guys who wanted to do the rally themselves, and then ill health meant they couldn't, so they passed it on to us for the required £99. And our first breakdown was at Fleet Services on the M3. <laughs> <laughs> this was our second breakdown. <laughs> this is in Girona in Spain when one of our wheel bearings seized. So uh, there we are on this lovely industrial estate. Beautiful setting. You see Claire there sunbathing while we're waiting for a tow truck to take us into a garage. So we got that repaired, got into Morocco there. 
lovely camels in Morocco, up into the Atlas Mountains. Now, when we arrived in Morocco, we met a guy with Land Rover in a petrol station who said, where are you going? Over the Atlas Mountains, down to the Sahara Desert. He said, you won't get a beetle over the Atlas Mountains. We got over the Atlas Mountains, and we met a Trabant at the top as well. So there you go. You don't need a Land Rover to get over the Atlas Mountains. Uh, that was a Renault 19 behind us as well. So absolutely fantastic scenes driving through the Atlas. A little bit hairy at times. The French cyclists overtaking us there. Up into the, the snow at the top. Um, that was not a car on the rally. That was just one of the locals coming the other way in a Renault 4. You can see it's, it's a little bit tight on the road at times. Um, we had lorries and buses coming around there as well. So uh, I was lucky enough on this event, I was traveling with another camera operator. So we were taking it in turns driving and filming. So you see, uh, when I took shots like this, I was swapping into one of the other rally cars so we could film each other. Because this was pre-GoPro days. We didn't have that luxury. So here we are, came down out of the Atlas Mountains onto the, the Sahara side of the mountains, drove down to the beach. Now we're heading for the Sahara Desert, so a beach shouldn't have been any, any obstacle, but the Fiat Uno there in the background got stuck. So this doesn't bode well for the desert, so we had to tow them off, tow them out of the sand and carry on. There's the Renault 19 we were traveling with as well. We got a little three-car convoy going there. We stuck with these guys most of the way. These, these two are Canadian. I'll come back to them later, Daryl and Prashant, because they helped me source the car that is outside tonight. Uh, here we are, our little convoy, in front of the Safari Garden Hotel in Daklar in Western Sahara, just before we went into the desert. Uh, here we are, in the Sahara Desert. In the Sahara Desert, it rains, on average, one day every two years. We were there on that day. <laughs> Seriously, no one else can go to the Sahara and it rains, but we did. And when it rains, I didn't know this, but when it rains, it's usually followed by a sandstorm. We had the worst sandstorm they'd seen in the region in seven years. And I think you can see that there. You can see Claire next to the car, my co-driver. She's got a scarf around her face where it's absolutely, yeah, it, it was insane. Absolutely insane. I, I had to wrap the camera in cling film to protect it from the sand. And there's an Austrian film crew there as well. And one of their guys, when we got to the coast, he came up to me and he turned the focus ring on his camera and he said, listen to this. And it was just crunching. Yeah, my camera was borrowed from, from Canon, so I had to bring it back without sand in it, which I managed reasonably successfully. There was a little bit. Uh, the ambulance was not there for us. It was actually one of the rally vehicles as well. They got that, it's a French one. They got it off of eBay for 500 pounds, so Welsh one. Welsh ambulance, they got it from eBay. And that, again, with all the cars were auctioned for charity. The ambulance, they identified a clinic down in Gambia that they were donating it to. And they filled the back of it with, uh, with various uh, wheelchairs and spinal boards and things that they donated to the clinics as well. So all of these events I've done have all raised money for various charities. In this case, uh, we raised money for Great Ormond Street, and we also, the cars were donated, and that money went to West African charities. Um, and the same with the ambulance went to the clinics. 
So you see this is our little seven-car convoy. We had a guide in the Sahara, luckily, which with the sandstorm we needed it. And when we camped in the sandstorm, we camped in one of these great big tents that the camel herders leave hidden in different places so that they can camp when they're traveling through. We'd secured it to the cars because of the raging sandstorm. Now, when I went in there to look for a spot to sleep, I thought, I don't like the look of this. Everybody was all in there. there was the, the, only, the only space left was stony, and I thought, they're going to snore. They'd been cooking camel meat in there. It smelt bad already, so I thought, no, I'm going to put my own little tent up, my little 10-pound Tesco dome tent. In the middle of the night, the camel herder's tent fell down. We heard a lot of screaming, looked outside. Their <laughs> tent had fallen down. They all ended up sleeping in their cars. The little 10-pound Tesco dome tent was still standing the next morning. <laughs> So it did as well. I've still got that tent now as well. It's still going. And that's the Trabant. There's the Trabant I met at the top of the Atlas Mountains. It made it to the Sahara as well. They didn't sell very well at the auction at the end, the Trabants. They, they did a two-for-one deal on Trabants and still couldn't shift them. <laughs> Don't think the Africans knew quite what to make of them. There's the Fiat Uno, stuck again. Um, Beetles, are surprising. they move surprisingly well on sand. Fiat Uno's not so much. So this was in a minefield between uh, Mauritania and Senegal. Sorry, Western Sahara and Mauritania. Western Sahara is a disputed territory. It was invaded by Morocco and Mauritania, and the border region's mined still. So there's this three kilometers of minefield we had to drive through and sand with the sandstorm had blown across the track. So there we are getting stuck in a minefield. And the, the Fiat Uno in particular didn't cope too well with the soft sand. So uh, there's the beetle doing absolutely fine while they're digging it out. Um, and this was the point where we discovered if you've got a camera, you don't have to do the work. <laughs> you can just stand there and film them and watch everybody else dig. Uh, is the, uh, the auction for the cars at the end in Gambia. So I came back from this rally. Ah, there's Mike and Seema. Um, when the car was auctioned at charity, for, at the auction at the end, when the car sold, it was bought by these two. Mike is actually a cameraman that I used to work with at Sky and who happens to own property with his partner Seema there, who's a Persian princess. They own property in Gambia. And they heard what I was doing, and Mike helped out with the filming as I set off and arrived in Gambia. And uh, they decided they would buy the car at the end. They thought it would be a nice end to the story if they were to buy the car and have it as a little runaround at their property in Gambia. And they've since passed it on to the uh, Eco Lodge, which was adjacent to their property, who were using it as a tourist taxi. So that car that was scrapped and hadn't run for 15 years is still working in Gambia as a taxi now. <laughs> I think they've painted it green, though. It's appropriate. It's St. Patrick's Day today, right? Yeah. So it brings me on to the Mongol rally. I didn't actually plan on doing this, but I came back from Gambia, and some friends of mine were going off on this rally, and they, they invited me to the launch party at the Ace Cafe. And there was a guy there whose co-driver had dropped out. And he's, he basically he just said, you know, begged me to go, said, look, I need someone to come with me, you know, I've paid for it, just, if you can just cover your own costs, then 
So, okay, I'll see what I can do if I can get the time off work. So, two weeks later, there I was, um, heading off to, to Mongolia via this place. I'm sure you, you've all seen this place on the news recently. It's our first stop out of Europe in the Ukraine. Looking a bit different these days. This, the square there, the main square you see in, in Kyiv. I've just learned the, the proper pronunciation of that tonight, not the Russian variant. And uh, some of our cars. So I, I started out in a Suzuki SJ, in a convertible Suzuki SJ. I didn't finish in a Suzuki SJ. Uh, this is in Kyiv. And the, the guys, yeah, what do you do when you're in, in Kyiv? You, you have to try the local food, right? Chicken Kyiv. But the waitress didn't understand what Chicken Kyiv was. So that's what they're doing there. They're miming chicken. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't get any. <laughs> uh, this, this is quite a typical site across Ukraine and in parts of Russia. Car on a stick. I'm not entirely sure why, but it was advertising a, a service station there. And uh, now moving into the friendly neighbours and the very flat police cars. This was, uh, they, they put those out as a deterrent to motorists. So from a distance, you might think it's a police car parked there. Uh, typical service station in, in Russia. That's our, our six-car convoy we had at this point. This is the, uh, there we are, Wee, I've got a pointer. That's the SJ I started out in. That's the micro I finished up in. Um, just, yeah, apparently, randomly deciding to go off on a car rally with a bloke you've just met in the Ace Cafe isn't the best idea. So, I mean, it was great. It worked out in the end. We, we didn't particularly get on. I'm sure he'd say the same. So, my friend in the micro there, who I met on the way, he was having similar issues with his co-driver, was his best friend, um, and he didn't want to fall out with him, and it was heading that way. So, we said, hey, let's swap. Everyone's happy. So I ended up traveling in the micro instead. And uh, here we are heading into Kazakhstan on some particularly lovely roads with the uh, polo there at the front. I've lost my pointer. There it is. Polo, micro, mini, and the little Bedford rascal. And you note on the back of the Bedford there, the bumper dumper. I'm sure some of you remember seeing a bumper dumper on Top Gear when they went to the North Pole. This predates that by quite some time. So that is the original bumper dumper. <laughs> here we are in, in Kazakhstan. It's interesting in Kazakhstan, we, we had this in a lot of places, but it became really prominent in Kazakhstan. Every village we went to, everybody very friendly, welcoming, just like this. Everyone wanting their pictures around the cars, being very friendly. And then they'd warn us about the next town and the bandits in the next town. And, oh, don't go there. Don't go there. They're bad people. They're bandits. And then you get to the next town, and it's the same story. They're lovely, and they're warning about the people in the next town. So we figured there wasn't really that much to worry about. Um, camping in the woods. That is a mosquito net. Russian woods, we could be back into Russia. So we, we sort of, you go Ukraine, bit of Russia, Kazakhstan, back up into Russia, and then down into Mongolia. So this is back in Russia again in the forests. Um, quite a lot of mosquitoes. I don't smoke, but I took up smoking just to keep the mozzies away. <laughs> if I needed to go to the bathroom in the woods, can I have a cigarette? Waft it around to try not to get bitten. 
um, fairly unsuccessfully. I did end up with a tick bite on my ankle, but that's another story. Some massive Russian trucks, little mini massive Russian trucks, and some more massive vehicles on the roads. This was when the rain hit, big time. It all came down in about 24 hours, just rain, rain, rain. So that was the scenes when we arrived in Omsk. It was, yeah, kind of insane. Um, we had a few, so we, we're tackling floods like this. One of the cars got into a prang with a bus, couldn't find anywhere, all the hotels were full. So we ended up at this place after asking around. Ministry of Foreign Affairs Hostel. You see the delightful artwork on the wall there. Classic Athena print, I think. That was our, our motley group. This absolutely beautiful region here, the Altai Mountains region of Russia going into Mongolia. It's absolutely stunning and provided some, some great photo opportunities. I'd love to say we drove right through there off-road, but there was a road about 300 yards from where we took that picture. We just sneaked off the side to take some photos. <laughs> and we didn't drive across that bridge either, but it's a great photo opportunity. <coughs> I've got photos of cars parked in front of it, making it look like we drove across. We didn't. The people who live there do. Who knows what that is? <laughs> yeah, it's a toilet. That is the toilet at the Russian-Mongolia border, and yep, that is an open cesspit. Um, not the worst toilet that we had to visit on this trip. So get across the, the, Mongo the border into Mongolia. Mongolia is amazing. It's one of my favorite countries incredible people, very, very friendly people. Um, so they, here we are camping on the first night, and you think, you think you're miles from civilization, you think you're miles from anywhere, and then some Mongolians appear with their horses, and usually some hard sour cheese. So here they are, they pop up on their horses, and uh, there's Meso there, who I was traveling with in the Micra, um, giving them some sweets, some Haribo, so then they came back with their parents with some vodka. <laughs> that was a good trade. <laughs> good trade. So that turned into a very drunken night. And that young lad went home with a camp chair. <laughs> Mesa got to try out the horse. And of course, you know, if, if the gentleman lets you ride his horse, then it's only fair that he should have a go in your car, right? So that was a nice trade-off. This was... Uh, Mongolia is very high altitude. It looks warm on some of those photos. It looks lovely and sunny and warm, and in the daytime it was, but it's very high altitude. It gets very cold, and it's above the tree line. So trying to find wood for a fire is a bit of a challenge. That's yak dung. So we were running around looking for dried up pats of yak dung to burn, along with our, our rubbish. Any rubbish we had in the cars got burnt as well. Um, two humped camels. So we'd met some single-humped camels on the, the rally in Africa, and now the ones with two humps. This is one of my favorite photos of the, the mini that was in our convoy. I actually won a competition with that, so I'm very proud of that, taken on medium format film, if anyone's into their photography. Um, if I talk about the skies in Mongolia, being, when people say, oh, big skies, that's what they mean. The skies in Mongolia are absolutely incredible, just vast. And the, the diversity of the country, one minute you feel like you're driving through the Shire, um, the next minute you're in Mordor. It's absolutely incredible. And here we are back in the Shire with the little 
skirt tents dotted around. Um, and this was, uh, we, we got quite a few punctures in the micro. And at this point, Mesa was changing the wheel and, and these two of the guys had gone off, this cowboy in the hat there, he'd, he'd ridden over, he spoke English. He was the first person we met in Mongolia who spoke English, perfect English. He came riding over and he said, oh yes, I'm just back visiting my family from university. And, uh, Come and come and have tea with us. So I went over to the tent. The, the two two of the guys there had already gone ahead of me. So I went over to find them when we finished the puncture repair. And I went into the tent, and they're sitting around, and they had these bowls of um, fermented mare's milk that they were drinking. And he says to me, you know, they, they gave me a bowl, and I took a sip. And he said, oh, in our culture, it's normal to drink it down in one. Okay. Down it went, and he smiled and laughed, and went, okay. And then they handed me another bowl of their homemade vodka and said, oh yeah, yeah, the same, oh, the same, okay. Down it went in one, and everybody started laughing. I said, what's so funny? And he said, well, in our culture, if you can drink like that, you're considered a man. And he said, they didn't do it. <laughs> So that's why I, I was given pride of place there in between the, the mother and father for the photo that they wanted outside. Now this, has anyone here seen, well I'm sure most of you have seen Long Way Round with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman. Do you remember a river that they got to in Mongolia that they couldn't cross and they had to ride two days south to go round it? This was that river. We were lucky enough when we got there, there were these two trucks coming across and we managed to persuade some of them with a, a little bit of money to tow us across. So there, there's the Mini, which obviously the smallest of the cars, getting towed across the river there. And that was our view from inside the Micra as we crossed the river. <laughs> but yeah, we, we got across, we survived. There's the, the outdoor seating on the Mini. There were uh, uh, engineering students, I believe, in the Mini, and they had actually rigged that up, so there were mounting points on the roof for the passenger seats, so they could take it out and bolt it to the roof. Oh, that's the micro in, in the background there, just having a little whiz around, having a little play there. This was uh, one of our many punctures, and these chaps turned up to help repair it, and then invited us home to their gur and ended up spending some time with them. They were quite confused by all the blue gunk inside the tires, which was supposed to seal the puncture. It's a sudden, very sudden hailstorm. Back through the desert again. I'm kind of flicking through a bit because I'm aware I've got quite a lot to get through and I'm going to get told off for time if I spend too much time on each side. <coughs> this is a, a van load of Spanish tourists that ended up in one of these drainage ditches that uh, we tried to get them out. You can see we've got a bit of carpet underneath there. We were trying to give them some traction and help pull them out, but our cars weren't up to it, but we were still able to help. We went and flagged down a truck and got them to pull them out and got given a bottle of vodka for our thanks. A little trip to the shop. You see we've uh, lost our rear bumper by this point. And uh, one of my favourite road signs. Rather fond of that. So this is the big one. So I came back from Mongolia and I really I wanted to go further. And my friend was over visiting from Australia, and I said, well, you know, we looked at the map, and she said, why don't you drive out and visit me? And we laughed, and I looked at the map, and I'm like, well, you know what, I can get as far as Singapore without having to cross water. 
So that's what I decided to do. And that's the car you've seen outside, setting off from Goodwood, that I drove from here to Singapore. Our first breakdown was at the Channel Tunnel. <laughs> so I made it a bit further than in the first Beetle. Uh, it was a starter motor. And the Channel Tunnel recovery guys showed us where to hit it to keep it going. So we made it as far as the European Buggin drag race meet in Belgium and met these guys, the crazy Canuck drag racers, who pulled the car into their pit garage and helped us source a starter motor in the marketplace there and then repaired it for us and, uh, and uh, as uh, the mascot, <laughs> Sarah the mascot, <laughs> who will really thank me for showing this slide if she's watching. There we are, crazy Canuck racing. That sticker's a bit faded now, it's still on the car. And here we are in Montenegro, moving on to Montenegro. And the city walls of the old town, they're absolutely beautiful. Uh, sorry, that was, that was um, Dubrovnik. Now we're in Montenegro, the city walls of Dubrovnik. Into Montenegro and up through the tunnels in the mountains, which had incredible tropical feel about it, into Kosovo. And I mentioned before that we've raised money for charity on all the different rallies that I've done. Um, in the Sahara, in that minefield where the Fiat got stuck, Claire and I played a, a bit of a practical joke, which uh, oh, there's a DVDs for sale at the back there of that trip. We filmed the whole thing. And you'll see the practical joke that we played on our friends. And when I came back, you know, and I thought, actually, that was a bit of a silly thing to do. We were mucking about in a minefield. So out of guilt, I chose landmine charities to raise funds for here. I thought I'd better address the karma balance. So this was the first project that we raised funds for, which was the Mines Awareness Trust um, clearing unexploded ordnance in Kosovo. There's, there's a vast amount of uh, cluster bombs were dropped there during the Kosovo War. And there we are. There's Rika, my co-driver, or co-non-driver. She's American and um, couldn't drive a manual gearbox. So, so I did all the driving on this one. <laughs> but there we are with the demining team who... They were very pleased to, to have us tour their minefield, and they let me blow some stuff up that they'd found that day, which was fun. There's one of the demining dogs with us as well. But they said it, it made a real change because normally they're only visited by bearded, serious men. So it made a change. They, they, they do have a lady on the team there, Flora, lady deminer. She whoop, gone past one. There we are in our, in our flak jackets blowing stuff up. None of them were wearing them, but they insisted we do. So moving on, here we are in, uh, in Turkey. So whizzed through Greece on into Turkey and Cappadocia region. These guys um, are from Teddington. <laughs> and I'm, I met them at the Iranian border. There I was in a packed immigration hall and I heard someone shout, Hi, Fiona. I'm like, I don't know anyone here. And it was them, and I'd never met them before, but they'd heard what I was doing. They knew that I was doing that trip, and they saw this white lady standing out like a sore thumb in, in Iranian immigration and uh, put two and two together. So we, we travelled for a couple of days up to, into Tehran, and, well, not Tehran, into Tabriz, and uh, had a night out in Tabriz. And then they went on to Mongolia. They were doing the rally to Mongolia, but different route to the one I'd done before. Another breakdown, another garage. You see David Beckham there, advertising Castrol GTX. 
Um, I was having a lot of problems with dust and muck getting into the carburetor, so I just pulled in and these guys were helping clear it out. And this chap here, Ali, he stopped and was translating for me. And then he invited me to go back to his house and meet his family. I was a little bit dubious about following a strange man back to his home in a strange country, but I thought, well, I'll follow him to his house and I'll see what I think when I get there. I can always drive on. You know, I'm in the car. I don't have to get out and drive on. So I got to his house and there was his, his wife in Iran, stood leaning out the front door with no headscarf and all her hair like hanging loose and a little top on. And I thought, you know what, I think, I think they're probably all right. <laughs> I think they're probably quite a liberal family. So uh, there we are. I went and there she is. There's, uh, there's Roya and her daughter, Nilafar, and they invited me in. And I ended up staying the night with them. They were so, so friendly, such lovely people. And we had uh, a meal there, and all the family came over. This is, this is at her sister's house. Just, we found Granny there. Granny was wearing the full black chador when she arrived, which, I don't know, it can be a little bit intimidating when you meet someone there dressed all in black and you can't see their face, but Granny arrives in the full black chatter and she whips it off, hangs it on a peg, and there she is, just dressed like anyone else's Granny underneath. Just absolutely lovely, friendliest people you can ever meet. And this was true of everybody I met in Iran, as long as they weren't in a uniform. Um, there we are, there's one of the ladies in the chatter. This is at Persepolis the ancient ruins of Persepolis. I had to do a little bit of sightseeing while I was there. But, ah, here we are. This was, that's a police car behind me there. That's a Pacon, that car. Um, this was another breakdown. This is in Bam, which was hit quite badly with, with earthquakes previous to my visit there. So uh, there used to be a fantastic mud fort there, which was one of the wonders of the world, I think. But um, that was destroyed in the earthquakes. Now, my throttle cable broke here. Um, I stopped at the side of the road, and a truck driver stopped, and I showed him the problem, and uh, you know, he, he was making some calls and trying to help me. And then a black BMW with tinted windows pulled up, and this, uh, this man in a suit got out, and he's talking in a phone in one ear and on the radio in the other ear, and he's shouting and making a lot of noise. And I'm What's going on here? Turned out he was the local chief of police, and he was not too impressed that there was a, a white woman driving across through his region in this car on my own. So unfortunately, from this point on, I had to have police escorts, which slowed things down considerably, but was very handy for getting the car fixed. <laughs> he basically just wanted me to get the car fixed and get out of his region as quick as possible. And there's the poor mechanic that got dragged out of his home on his day off by force, by the police, to fix my car. And the, the guest house there, which was, the, the guest house had been destroyed in the earthquakes, so you can see it's half in shipping containers. This was the only other beetle I saw on the road in Iran. Excuse the poor photo, it's through a very fly-spattered windscreen, it's a very busy road, so I couldn't get out on my side. But I had to stop, because I hadn't seen any other beetles in Iran. And these two lads came up to the window. They, they pulled in as well, and they jumped out, and they came over for a chat. They'd never seen a Baha beetle before, my style of beetle. They'd seen pictures on the internet, but they'd never actually seen one. So they were, they were thrilled to meet me. And they told me a story about this car that they were driving. And they said they'd bought that car from a man who was driving from the UK to Pakistan. 
He said he was, he'd bought the car in the UK and he was driving home to Pakistan and they'd met him in Yazd in Iran here and they persuaded him to sell the car to them and finish his journey on the bus. <laughs> Years later, I was at the Ace Cafe in London and a man came up to me and he starts telling me a story about how he had been driving a Beetle home to Pakistan, but two boys in Yazd in Iran had persuaded him to sell it to them. And I went through my photos and I got the picture out and I said, is it this car? Yep. Small world. Very small world. Uh, uh, Mount Ararat. This is uh, in the town known as Doggy Biscuit. Doyu Bayezit, I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but it's, it's traditionally known by travellers as Doggy Biscuit, um, close to the uh, Iran-Pakistan border. So here we are going into Pakistan. Everybody wanted their picture taken. I was a little bit dubious before my trip about going to Pakistan, you know, what you hear in the news. Um, and I kind of thought, well, you know what, when I, when I get to the border, you know, when I, when I get into Pakistan, when people ask where I'm from, I can always say I'm Irish or Canadian, because they don't offend anyone, right? <laughs> I'm looking at the Irish person in the audience. No, they don't offend anyone. But I got to the border. I was at the border, and the border policeman said to me, where are you from? I thought, well, I can't lie to the border police, because they're going to see my passport in a minute. So I said, I'm from England, very sheepishly. Oh, you're English. Oh, do you like cricket? Yes, I lied. Yes, I love cricket. And Pakistan are doing really well, aren't they? Friends for life. So they poured me a tea and whisked me to the front of the immigration queues and all wanted pictures with the car. Um, they did put police escorts with me as well. Um, they said this, this was not so much for my safety. They said, it's perfectly safe. They said, but occasionally tourists have been kidnapped. They said, it's quite tribal areas. And they said, you know, the tribes, they, they'll kidnap tourists and then they'll hold you to ransom to get their prisoners released from the government. Um, they said everybody that it's happened to, they've been really well treated and they've come back saying how wonderful and hospitable their hosts were and it's not a problem, but it's not very good for tourism. So they, they put police escorts in the car with me through this region, but they were, they were mostly very friendly. That's a petrol station. <laughs> um, in Iran, the fuel was 10p a litre. So you find it gets smuggled across the border into Pakistan and sold in containers like this because it's very, very cheap. It's only 81 octane, but the Beetle will run on it. Very cheap. Um, and I couldn't find a petrol station anywhere, so I asked my police escort, where can I buy petrol? Oh, here you go. That's black market petrol that's been smuggled across the border, but the police took me there, so, you know. Uh, so this was outside a hotel in Dalbandin in western Pakistan. So I, I pulled out the front of the hotel and the, the usual crowd amassed around the car while I was waiting for my police escort. And I saw these chaps over the road were changing a wheel on their lorry. And Pakistan has the most beautiful lorries in the world. They're stunning, so ornate. So I'm taking a picture of these guys changing their wheel. And they, they were obviously having a bad day, but they were made up when I told them they had the most beautiful truck I'd ever seen. And then there's all this commotion starts up down the road. These guys are all shouting at me, really shouting and yelling. And I turned to the hotel manager and I said, what's going on, what's the problem? He said, they want to know, why don't you want their picture? 
So there we are. I took their photo and it was all smiles and laughing. And that's all it was about. Why don't you want our picture? Taking everyone else's. Uh, this was a, a particularly nasty road that was being built. The police decided I didn't need an escort on this bit. I think they just didn't want to go down that road. So the, the, truck, the truck there is stuck and this guy's pushing him out. So I had to wait for all this commotion to clear and then headed on through. And that was the point where I got a puncture. Um, and there we are, the police to my aid again. When I got through the other side, the police came to my aid. Um, police and locals, I had about 12 people falling over themselves to help me. And they all sent me in the house for tea and nibbles and they got my puncture repaired and put the wheel back on. They were horrified when I tried to do it myself. They said, no, no, we'll do that. You have some tea. So I didn't need to be asked twice. Some more of the, the gorgeous trucks, absolutely beautiful trucks. Which tend, they tend to have a central image on the back there, usually all quite political or military. And this is a lovely family at the truck station who invited me in and, and uh, fed me and let me wash up. They said, would you like to use our bathroom, which I think was a way of telling me that I was a bit dirty. Um, but they were very sweet, and the boys, because I'd set off from Goodwood from the Festival of Speed, I was showing them all the photos from my journey, and when I got to the ones at the Festival of Speed of all the different cars, they were absolutely fascinated to see all the different cars, all the, the different supercars and things, and classic cars at Goodwood. They'd never seen anything like that before. They see a lot of trucks, but not so much of the cars. And this, this is in Lahore, and these, these two little girls are absolutely beautiful. Some more another family that they, they, I met these guys and they, they ran a clothing shop and they gave me this traditional costume and we went to the, the Wagga border ceremony, which I don't know if any of you have ever seen the videos. You've got these incredible tall guards that march up and down like flamingos on the Pakistan and the India side. And uh, it's a bit like Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> But it's fantastic. They put on such a show and the, the dancing and waving. And most of the tourists want their pictures taken with them, which, yeah, sure. All the guards were wanting their pictures taken with me. And then when, when Rika and I went back, you notice Rika's been absent through the, the Pakistan pictures. This was because my co-non-driver, as she called herself, um, she couldn't get a visa for Iran. So she flew from Istanbul to Lahore. So she met me again in Lahore. And we went back here the next day. And um, it took us an hour and a half to walk from the border there back to our hotel just down the road over here because everybody wanted a photo with us. And at this point, somebody pulled a baby out of the crowd and handed me a baby to hold that was wearing blue that matched my top. And Rika says, where's my baby? I want a baby. Sure enough, someone produced one wearing yellow <laughs> to match her outfit. Everybody wanted their picture with us. So there's one of the guards, another guard. It's, still, it's getting dark now, and we still haven't made it back to our hotel. We're still having our pictures taken. As moving into India, and some of the, uh, some of the attention we used to get on the roads, the police, some of the not-so-wanted attention. So it wasn't these guys, but another particular policeman pulled us over and accused us of speeding. I said, it's a beetle, we can't speed in this car, it doesn't go that fast. Yeah, 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 you were speeding. I'm like, no, no, we weren't speeding. We definitely, we weren't speeding. Yeah, you were speeding. So I said, okay, show me on your camera that we were speeding and I'll pay the fine. And he couldn't. So I said, ah, 
no seatbelt, you're not wearing a seatbelt. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's here, it's under my arm, I'm wearing a seatbelt. At this point, a tuk-tuk went past with about 20 people hanging off the back, and Rika said, where's their seatbelts? And so then he decided that you know, we had the jerry cans on the side of the car. He went, oh, you can't carry fuel here. Oh, there's no fuel in there, they're empty, which they were. We hadn't been able to find a fuel station, we'd put it all in the car. Oh, they're empty. Oh, yeah, but it's illegal, you can't carry them. So Rika gets the phone and she went, I'm not sure if that's right, let me just call the embassy. And he decided he'd let us go at that point. <laughs> but um, at the same time as we were doing this, there was uh, a bio-truck expedition going through and they ran into a similar problem, but rather than kind of teasing the police a bit like we were and joking with them, they got argumentative and they ended up in jail. So you know, you've got to be careful in these situations. This is Taj Mahal. Rika insisted we had to get dressed up for a picture there. We did, and that's White Teddy. Um, White Teddy, my friend Helen sponsored me to take her son's teddy bear and take photos of him in different places around the world. And his slide's in here because he was deemed a security risk at the Taj Mahal and they wouldn't let me take him in there. So there he is with his own little teddy bear and his little suitcase. Now, this was uh, in India. Some of the crowding in India as uh, I was trying to repair the car, I'd hit something in a river in Pakistan that had caught um, the sump guard and bent it backwards. And as I'd limped out of the river on the other side, there was this group of guys walking towards me, all bearded, serious-looking guys with shovels and pickaxes on their shoulders walking towards me. It was a little bit... I was about from here to that wall away from uh, Helmand province of Afghanistan, so it was a little bit worrying. And uh, they came over and they were, they were really sweet and they helped bend the sump guard back into shape and put it back on the car. And when I thanked them, they said, no, no, no thanks necessary, it's our duty to help travellers. But it did continue to be an issue with the car. The shock absorbers were dying and the back end was dragging and this sump guard was catching on everything and that's what I was doing here, trying to bend the sump guard back into shape again. So I'm trying to swing a hammer to hammer it back up again and I've got all these people crowded around me and I'm like, please, I don't want to hit anybody here. <laughs> Personal space in India was a little bit of a challenge at times. But this is a little bit of a sightseeing stop in Varanasi, the Ghats in Varanasi. And uh, moving up into Nepal, and that's my engine. So, as I said, hit something in the river in Pakistan and started leaking oil. And by the time we got to Kathmandu, it was getting quite serious. We were leaving a trail behind us everywhere we went. We were struggling with the altitude as well. Um, and managed to find a VW specialist, as you do. <laughs> but back in the 60s, the old hippie trail ended in Kathmandu. Everyone was driving beetles and campers out there. So there, there are hundreds of beetles in Nepal. So, yeah, here we are, a VW specialist. And uh, met the VW owners club over there, and they've stickered up the car. We've got their, their sticker on the car. Again, it's very faded now, but it's still there. Uh, there's Rika, my co-driver, and the guys in, from the garage. There we are. Association of Nepal Beetle Users Group, Anbug. Some more of the beetles there. And Rika's favourite, there was a Mini there as well. So I don't know who drove that out there, but all these cars that were driven out there in the 60s, they are still going. Oh, we've slipped back to... Oh, no, this is still in Nepal. There's a 
the, the typical the cows in the street in Nepal. There's Durba Square, the little temples that you have everywhere. And on into the mountains, heading for the Chinese, or rather Tibetan, border. Uh, some of the trucks that you see there with goats and children on the roof. Goats and children outside. And on onto the Tibetan plateau. Some of the locals there, they gave us directions to a fantastic viewpoint for Mount Everest, which here we are, Kwamalangmo in the, the local language, nature preserve. There's beautiful views of Mount Everest there in the distance. So I've got some photos of the car of Mount Everest. You see our luggage on the roof there, which was inside up to this point. In Tibet, we, we had to have a guide with us. Uh, it's the only way you can get permission from the Chinese government to drive through Tibet is to have a guide in the car with you. So hence, all the luggage had to go on the roof and make room for a guide. And there we are, on the road up to Mount Everest. And there I am. I'm very proud of that picture. And it's very, very unusual to see the peak of Everest without a cloud in the sky. I'm stood next to Rongbuk Monastery there on my way up to base camp. And that's my Chinese driving license. I had been in the country three days before I got to a police station where they could do the driving test. So I'd already been driving for three days in the country before I did my test. Um, and the test consisted of sitting down with the chief of police. And he says to me, uh, you know, in China, we drive on the right. And I said, yes, yes, I know that. OK, you know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, tried to catch me out. He said, because you know, in the UK, you drive on the left. Said, yeah, I'm aware of that. Yeah, yeah I, but I know in China, you drive on the right. OK, good. And he ticked the box. And that's how my test carried on, with him telling me, me agreeing, and him ticking the box. <laughs> so, so I passed that one. Um, then there, there was uh, a, a, a health test as well, which I was a bit concerned about because I was suffering from altitude sickness having just been to Everest Base Camp. Um, but all I had to do was read an eye chart over there and that was fine. I read the eye chart, yep, okay, ticked that box. Then there was a test for the car, which was also suffering from the altitude um, and still wasn't quite over its oil leak. It, you know, it had repairs in Nepal, but there was still a problem there. I found I'd cracked the sump apparently. So that carried on to get worse. But they drove the car around the car park came back to stop in front of me, got out, yeah, good car, good car, and then about 200 policemen all wanted their picture with the car, and then they were happy, and off I went with my driving license. And there they all are, stood around having their pictures taken. All right, I might have exaggerated when I said 200, but quite a lot of people, all having their pictures taken with the car. Uh, here we are in, in Lhasa, in Tibet, the Patola Palace, which, uh, ah, yes, this is the... The hotel we stayed in, in Lhasa. Um, our guide told us there weren't any cheap hotels. We begged to differ, and we found one online, and we booked it, and we checked in there. And in the hotel room, there's a brochure, and they're advertising a spa. And there's a picture of a lady in a, in a white coat giving someone a massage on a massage table. It all looked legit. Um, so Rika says to me, I want to go for a massage. I'm like, oh, OK, well, massage isn't really my thing, but my feet ache, so I wouldn't mind just getting my feet done. So OK, I'll come to the spa with you. This boy here, he was the receptionist in the spa. He didn't speak any English. We didn't speak any Mandarin, but OK. So we mimed what we wanted. He said she would like a full body massage, me, just my feet massage. OK. So he led us through to this, uh, this 
room where they had these sort of lazy boy seats and big screen TV playing karaoke. Um, and we sat there, and this lady came in with a towel over her arm and a bucket of water, wearing very high heel shoes and a see-through negligee and lacy underwear. Because <laughs> at this point, we suspected it might not be the sort of spa we thought it was. But, okay. So she took my shoes and socks off, rolled my trousers up, and started massaging my feet. So, okay, well, they understood what we wanted. <laughs> That's good. Um, so Rika gets hold of the price list, and she's looking at it, and she says to this, this boy, she points at the most expensive thing on the list, and she what's this? Show me, what's this? So she disappears. The lady finishes my massage, which was really good. Great massage. She's giving it all that in my shoulders as well. It's fantastic. Um, and then I said to her, where's, where's my friend? Where's my friend? Where's she gone? She said, oh, come, come. And she took my hand, and she led me along a corridor, and there was a door stood open, which left nothing to the imagination. I, I figured out where we were. And we got to a door at the end of the corridor, and I can hear Rika laughing on the other side. And I thought, I'm not sure I want to see what's going on in there. But it was too late. She'd opened the door, and there's Rika <laughs> trying out the facilities, getting this guy to take a picture of her. It was definitely not that sort of spa. <laughs> um, so, but, I mean, we had a great laugh with these guys, you know. Um, it was hilarious. I mean, they, they found it, they realised we didn't realise what sort of establishment it was, and they found it as funny as we did. So we end up sat on the steps out the front, drinking beer with, with this lad and some of the prostitutes from the establishment, all sat drinking beer out the front when our, when our Chinese guide arrives back. And he said, I think you don't, not, don't know what this place is. And I'm like, yeah, I think we figured it out much to his embarrassment. And this was a sign on the back of our hotel door. It's forbidden to prostitute, abuse, drug, and gamble. So we've just come from that spa. There was a pretty serious game of mahjong going on downstairs, and I'm pretty sure those pipes they were smoking didn't have tobacco in them. Now, unfortunately, we ran into a lot of bureaucracy in Tibet. And we got stuck in Lhasa for quite a long time, because our guide, our, our government guide, decided that we were not allowed to drive on a particular road. We argued the point as long as we could, and our visas were running out, and it got to a point where they made us. We had to put the car on a truck to the Lao border and fly to meet it. They would not let us drive on this particular road. So there's the car loaded up on... That is a Chinese car transporter. Yeah, very serious stuff. So I flew, up to the, flew out to the Lao border to meet the car there, and, and while I was waiting, um, Rika stayed down in, uh, in Vientiane to meet me down there at the other charity we were visiting, I'll get to. So I met up with this lady, and we hired scooters and went off exploring some of the tribal villages in northern Laos while we were waiting for the car to arrive at the border. Um, I've never ridden a motorbike before. So... When we, we, we're up exploring this, some of the tribal villages here, some lovely people who, who took us in out of the rain and offered us water. She had so these, these pictures on the wall, they were all photos of her. But I'm sure she had a story to tell had we spoken the same language. She's obviously done some modelling. Now, as I say, <laughs> I'm not used to two wheels. I've, I've driven on muddy trails like this before in the Baja, 
but my brother's a biker, my oldest brother's a biker. Um, and I figured if he can do it, if he can do it, I can do it, right? You know, what's so hard about two wheels? So I tackled this trail the same way as I would on four wheels. In the Baja, if I come across mud like that, I just power through it. Anyone here ride a motorbike? You don't do that on two wheels. If you try and power through it on two wheels, you end up in the loud jungle with a bike on top of you. And that's what happened. Uh, so yeah, I ended up back at the guest house with a sore leg. So this is where I'd been staying in uh, Luang Namta in northern Laos. And I'd been telling the people there and the, the little local tribal ladies who used to come around selling their jewelry and things, I'd been telling them, I'm waiting for my car. And they, of course, they didn't really follow what I was trying to say. What do you mean you're waiting for your car? So then I arrived with the car. I'm like, here it is, you see? The car. And they're like, ah. <laughs> so we are driving through northern Laos. You see the, the limestone formations there, similar to the ones you see in Heilong Bay. It's the same region. This is uh, Luang Prabang. I saw this VW camper parked at the side of the road. It was all closed up when I saw it, but I thought, well, I've got to stop here. There's a camper there, so I've got to stop there. So I went in the guest house, and the, the chap who was managing it did me a very good deal. I parked up behind this camper, and at night, there we are, all the sides opened up, and the bar stools came out, and what do you know? It's the world's smallest Irish bar. <laughs> Run by an Irishman in Laos, in a camper. So heading south towards Vientiane, and... The car went bang. <laughs> I broke down just there, behind the gates. Um, got out, walked around to have a look at the engines. What do I know about engines? Well, I know that spark plug should be in the engine and not hanging on the end of a wire. <laughs> but the engine was too hot to attempt to put it back in. I had a spark plug. I'm not a great mechanic, but I, I know that's not meant to be there. And I had a spark plug spanner, and I thought, I can, I can do that. I can put it back in but it's all too hot at the moment. So I, I took my cue and I, I went and had, I was right in front of this beautiful temple. So I walked through the gates, just wandered in and went and had a look around these temple grounds. And I, I figured, you know what? I think this is just the car's way of telling me sometimes you've got to stop and smell the roses, stop and have a look. Because you can get very focused on the destination and getting to the next place, getting to the next place. And sometimes you forget to stop and have a look around where you are. And that was a good reminder. So, yeah, I stopped and I had a look round, and then I put the spark plug back in the engine and carried on. And here I am in Vientiane at the second charity project that we were supporting, which was the Cope Centre in Laos. Um, they provide prosthetic limbs and rehabilitation for people who've been injured by unexploded ordnance, because Laos was very heavily bombed through the Vietnam War. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying there's a B-52 bomb load dropped every eight minutes on Laos. And there's still, even now, there's a hell of a lot of unexploded ordnance there. Um, and people, they, they go, they, they see something, the kids see something shiny and they go to pick it up. And even the adults who know, and they know that they shouldn't be touching these things, it's scrap metal, it's worth money. So they, they try and take it. And then they end up losing limbs. Uh, here's, here's one of the... Uh, the chap's showing us how to make a leg. That's quite a momentous occasion in Thailand, going round the clock. Been round again since then. It only goes up to 99,999. Uh, another breakdown, this time in, on Penang Island in Malaysia. 
another VW garage. As one of the reasons I chose a VW, partly because when I did the first rally in Africa, it was so well received. Everyone just smiled when they saw you coming. Um, but also, it's one of the most common production vehicles in the world, quite simple, and you, you can find specialists pretty much anywhere in the world to help you out. Oh, moving on. I haven't told you the end of the story. I got to Singapore. I was topping the oil up every 20 minutes by the time I got there, but I got there eventually. <laughs> you can buy the book at the back if you want to hear more. But I've got quite a lot to get through, haven't I? And I, I'm aware of the time. Have I only got five minutes left? I better whiz on. <laughs> so those are my personal trips. Do it again. I did say I could do one of these talks on each of the trips. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am talking quite quickly. I am going to have a drink. Mm. <laughs> so those are my personal travels. I've been lucky enough to be paid for travelling a few times as well. Um, this was the first occasion that uh, this is a friend of mine was running a supercar driving tour company, Petrolhead Nirvana. Um, some of you here have been on their tours. Um, this was one they did in Norway, and the chap who ran the company asked me if I would go along and film the event for him. So here we are. That's his car that, that I did get to drive. And the 328, which I drove there as well, and the 575 in Norway. But we're going to flick through that quite quickly because we've only got five minutes left, and I could do a whole talk on that alone. So Thunder Dragon Rally. This was with a company called Rally Round, who run endurance rally events. And they ran this fabulous ra rally in Bhutan. Do you want the sound down on this a bit? So this, this was, uh, this was a, the event they did in Bhutan. You see some of, the, some of the quite hairy roads. So one of the countries I've always wanted to go to, and I was lucky enough to be employed to go and, finish, go and film this, this event there. Actually, I, I offered a half-price deal just so that I could get to go there because I've always wanted to go to Bhutan. Some of the fabulous cars. And, and I know some of the people on the event are members here. So you may see some cars you're familiar with. There are Bentleys and everything there. And uh, the Buick. This was the, I think it's the first event, first rally event that's ever been run across... Bhutan, right across into eastern Bhutan as well, into restricted areas that were not normally permitted. But this is me combining my day job with my love of cars and travel. So this, this is perfect for me. This is heaven, getting to go and, and film beautiful cars in a beautiful environment, countries I've always wanted to go to. There's Jerry and Joyce, who are part of the Brooklyn's Furniture, I believe, in their Model A. There's some of the drops there. This, this was with the camera on our car. Fantastic road signs. As you can see, the E-Type is driving very slowly and carefully. And this. <laughs> this is the... I won't say what people say when they, when they see this. This is the wow shot. You see some of the drops here. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually stood where you saw the E-Type go past the, the sign that's on the opposite cliff face to where that car is. And that little stupa there is where a bus went over the side. That's a memorial. Absolutely incredible roads there. It's fantastic. 
So I'm going to move on to the Samurai Challenge Rally, which is an event that I filmed again for Rally Round, um, driving the full length of Japan. Driving through yeah, some absolute, I'd say it was uh, cherry blossom season when we were driving, driving from south to north, following the cherry blossom up the country. This is Koyasan, one of my absolute favourite places in Japan. I think it was my favourite place. The whole place is just lined with temples. There's an incredible old cemetery there. But this is the point where I was just going to let this video run in the background because it's quite long and you've had some question and answers. So if there's any questions, I'm going to pause for breath. It didn't come with the car because I bought the car in um, San Francisco. It was... Uh, I found it online, and if you imagine, I've got three friends in San Francisco, and if you imagine they live at three points of a triangle, my car was in the middle. So they converged on it and checked the car out for me, and one of them bought it for me, because the chap wouldn't deal with a foreigner. Um, he bought it for me and then sold it on to me and shipped it over for me. So when I registered it with the DVLA, I told them what I was planning on doing, and that's the number plate they gave me. I like to think that they did it deliberately. Yeah, I like to think that was a nice sort of, you know, little, there you go, from the DVLA. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic, Fiona. So we're going to, going to take, take questions now, but we'll, we'll, we'll use the mic. So if anybody wants to put their, uh, their hand up for any further questions on that, Lorraine will uh, deliver the, uh, the mic to you. Fantastic, Fiona. Thank you very much for that. It was a great, great storytelling, great, great trip that you went on. Uh, fantastic. Um, everyone seemed really hospitable on your journey. I was wondering what your most um, sort of hairy moments were and, uh, and, and how you kind of managed those. Um, and also a second question, small one. On the suspension travel of the Beetle, it looks mm -hmm. like it's quite tight. I just wondered what the ride was like and what the yeah, procedural process behind that. Yeah, the suspension did slowly die along the trip. So, yeah, I have had new shock absorbers since then. It did slowly get worse. Um, yeah, everyone seemed really friendly. Yeah, that's because you find with these trips, when you come back and you start talking about them, you remember the best bits. Um, yeah, there were, there were the odd hairy moments. There was um, travelling through Iran. There was a particular truck driver that... Uh, we were travelling at very similar speeds. So, you know, he would overtake me going uphill, I would overtake him going downhill, and we started waving and smiling at each other as we were passing each other. Um, and then at one point, he held up a flask, like, did I want to stop for a drink? And I thought, yeah, that's not a good idea, is it? Stop him with a strange lorry driver in, in a strange country in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I, I, you know, I didn't. And then a carload of lads came along, and they were driving very close to me, they weren't being threatening at all. They were just shouting, hey, where are you from? Where are you going? And trying to talk to me. But they were driving quite dangerously close to the car. Um, and at this point, the lorry driver who'd been signalling to me, he pulled over to the hard shoulder, and we were on a motorway. So I pulled in behind him. I thought, I'm just going to pull in with him, and I'll let these guys go. Um, at which point, they started reversing back down the motorway, and I, the truck drivers got out, and I pointed at what they're doing, and he shouted at them, like, what are you doing? Are you mad? You know. Um, they were just stopping to say hi and look at the car. There they, wasn't any threat there at all, and the truck driver was lovely. He had cold water in his flask, so he gave me some cold water and some nibbles. It was 50-degree heat in Iran, so that was very, very welcome. But I think that lulled me into a false sense of security, because you asked about hairy moments. So it was a few days later that I'm traveling, and there's another lorry 
and he's beeping and he's pointing at the back of the car as if there was some sort of problem. So I pulled over thinking, well, there must be an issue with the car. And I got out to have a look and he got out and he's, he started sort of offering me money. Um, didn't speak the same language. And I thought, well, why is he offering? And I thought he was trying to buy the car. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not for sale, it's not for sale. And he was getting increasingly aggressive, so I thought, okay, I'm getting back in the car here. So I get back in the car and I start the engine and he puts his hand in through the window and grabs my boob. Oh. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, maybe it wasn't the car he was trying to buy. But I drove off and I ran over his foot on the way. There was, there was a considerable bump and um, I'm pretty sure it was his foot. Uh, I kept expecting to see him in the rearview mirror, you know, dual style, but he didn't reappear, so hopefully I did a bit of damage there. <laughs> okay, fine. Question up at the front here, Lorraine. Just second row. Thank you. The big question I want to know, how much did you lose weight on these tours and what was the food like? Food. Well, I, I actually I got very sick in Pakistan. I didn't really lose weight on the, the event. That's I've lost weight through COVID. <laughs> if you don't recognise me from the pictures there, it's because I lost so much weight. I, I haven't had COVID. I just started exercising a lot during COVID. But no, um, the food. Well, I mean, I travelled through so many different countries. You know, it's very hit and miss. Sometimes it was wonderful. Sometimes not so much. Um, well, in, in Pakistan, I got very sick, and it was just from a sort of meat kebab, but I ended up in hospital for three days, um, seriously ill from it. Um, but again, you know, bad experiences lead to good experiences, so I end up in hospital with food poisoning, um, and I met some wonderful people. I met so the ladies on the ward were fantastic. They, you know, you don't need to speak the same language. They're brushing my hair and massaging my feet and pushing my bed underneath the ceiling fan because I said I was hot. Yeah, they're, they're absolute sweethearts. Um, uh, so I think everybody else needs to hear the question. So if you, otherwise, the, 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 which, the question there was how, how did you insure the car to drive across the world? You buy insurance at the borders. So yeah, I and mean, there's specialist companies at the borders that will sell insurance to travelers, which probably isn't worth much if you actually needed to claim on it, but it covers you legally if you were stopped in the country. Okay, any other questions? Lorraine, just, oh, you've got somebody there. All the countries sounded great, but where would you not go again? Where would I not go again? Um, if anywhere. That's a difficult question. I don't know about anywhere I wouldn't go. Um, I pretty much, I mean, I didn't have great experiences in India when I did my drive in, in the Beetle there, but then I went back with Rally Round. I probably wouldn't have chosen to go back, with in, back myself to India, but when I went back with Rally Round, I had a completely different experience and I loved it. So I'm not sure, I, I think it's always worth giving a country another chance. So just over here, there's a gentleman just, just there. Hi, um, I was just thinking about the reliability. I mean, I understand that the, why you chose the Beetle um, and uh -huh. the simplicity of stuff, but on, on those journeys, I mean, you've, you've done a number of, of rallies. When you got to the, to the long one you were showing us about there, was it as reliable as you thought? And it seemed from the slides, the interesting bits were interesting when you're broken down and how you got around it and the issues. But um, 
is, uh, did you expect it to be that reliable? Did you plan for it? It wasn't reliable. I no. broke down on and, the way here plan, tonight. Did you know that beforehand? Or <laughs> something that, you know, how did you plan for that? Or didn't you? You can't plan for it. I think that really, um, and, and this goes from when I did the first rally across the Sahara, I think myself and Claire, when we set out on that first rally, we knew we were going to break down at, at some point. I mean, the car we took hadn't run for 15 years. We knew we were going to break down, so when it happened, we just accepted it and got on with it and found someone to fix it for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. Um, I think if you want a reliable car, if, if this experience has taught me anything, take a Nissan Micra because that Micra that we drove to Mongolia, it didn't miss a beat. It was amazing, and it was really good off-road as well. But, I mean, the Beetle's got more character. It, it's, you, you definitely you get a better reaction from people when you rock up in a Beetle. They're smiling and laughing and more inclined to help you, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have got a soft spot for micros after doing that. Any, any further questions? One near the front here, Lorraine. I would just like to ask a question. When's your next venture and where are you going? And is there a website that we can sponsor you for your charities? Well, my website is worldrallies.com. As for where I'm going next, um, I've got a lot of ideas what I'd like to do. I mean, Pre-COVID, I was looking into uh, either doing the Pan American Highway from Alaska to Argentina or a circuit of South America. Um, whether the, those areas are really doable at the moment or not, I'm not sure. Um, otherwise, I'm looking at possibly New Zealand or other areas like that. Um, as a, as a you know, shorter trip, but I would love to do a circuit of South America. Um, as for when, when time and money allow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would love to, I, I'm, would love to would, I'm looking for a broadcast commission and sponsorship if, if I can find one. And is there a website you can go and sponsor? There's not at the moment. I've got my website's worldrallies.com and there's a contact form on there if anyone wishes to get in touch. Oh, let's, oh, got another question here. Could, could we just use just the microphone so everybody can hear the question? What kind of length are the rallies? I mean, how long, how many, how many weeks, how many months? Oh, it varies. Uh, how, how long have I been away on these different events? Well, um, the, the first one to Gambia, it took us three weeks to drive from the UK to Gambia. That was only 4,200 miles. Um, and we then had a week in Gambia at the end where we were distributing... Um, donations to charities that we had football kit and medical kits and things which we distributed to different charities there. Um, Mongolia it took us a month and that was a full month of driving we were quite tight for time in the end so I had to fly straight back again the cars were auctioned for charity in Mongolia and um, the drive to to Singapore the big one that took me three months I got three and a half months off work as I was staff at the time at Sky and um, it took three months to get to Singapore, and then I flew into Australia for the last two weeks and shipped the car home from Singapore. So the, these sort of these kind of rallies here that we're seeing on the screen that, that anybody can enter along, do they go on for? Yeah, the, uh, well, this this one, well, this one was the length of Japan, so that was a month-long rally again, well, three weeks, just over three weeks, driving the length of Japan. Um, the, the Bhutan one was a similar length. They do shorter ones, sort of week-long European ones, which I've filmed for them as well, which are all on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash world rallies. There's a theme there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're a week long. There's, there's two-week ones as well that they run in different places. 
okay. the company that, that ran these particular ones, they've wound up through COVID, but there's various companies around that do similar things. Yeah, sure. Okay, any other questions? No, no, I think. Okay, well, if, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up then. Okay, so thank you very much. Very warm. Big round of applause, please, for Fiona Easterby. Fiona, Fiona does have some books at the back. She, she, she has written a book, which I don't think covers all your exploits, but covers, covers certainly some of them. There's books and DVDs at the back there. The, the book is about my drive to Singapore. The DVD is um, about the, the drive that I did across the Sahara in the Beetle down to Gambia in the Orange Beetle. So Fiona will be signing those for you in, in, in a moment down, down at the back. I can leave you to the raffle then. That's a good idea, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Fiona. Fantastic. Well done.